Welcome to Parallax by Anchor Calra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anchor Calra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, as I've been um, introducing these episodes lately, these are all um, incredibly hard and unprecedented times for all of us. And, um, you know, the, the hope is that all of us are going to get through this um, safely and um, we're going to learn a tremendous amount of how to operate uh, in a world uh, post-COVID-19. Um, with that introduction, um, I have the true honor and privilege of um, having on the show uh, a person I call my brother, my friend, my buddy, my partner in crime, um, what have you. Um, but uh, I have on the show today, Dr. Grant Reed. Uh, Dr. Reed is an interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. He is the director of the STEMI program at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and he has a focus on coronary and structural heart interventions. So when, um, News started breaking out uh, from Seattle and New York. And uh, when our state, the state of Ohio, started taking action, you know, we all reached out to Grant, you know, asking him about how to, how to handle cardiovascular emergencies in the cardiac catheterization laboratory. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's done a great deal of um, reading and research and has put out... Um, the, the commandments, if you will, for all of us to follow. So with that introduction, Grant, welcome on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Ankur. And, uh, you know, that's uh, probably the kindest introduction I've ever had. <laughs> I think there's really no no greater honor to be, to be called someone's brother. And, you know, so, you know, I consider you the same. You know, it's uh, it's just an honor to be here. And, you know, thanks a lot for, for having me um, today. Yeah, no, thanks for the time. Um, so, um, Grant, you know, I, I think, uh, I'm going to start the show by uh, asking you, you know, when um, you started hearing about uh, COVID-19 in the news and uh, all the developments that were occurring. And, you know, there was, I think our state was arguably the, the very first state in the entire country uh, to start social distancing measures. Did you think that this was going to change uh, the way it has now? that we know that the way it has now changed our practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it, looking back at on, uh, you know, how, how things have changed really just over the last month and a half, it's really been pretty dramatic. You know, it, it's, um, it doesn't seem like it's only been about six weeks uh, since we've uh, uh, started down this path, but, um, it's, we are already thinking about things, uh, in life in terms of, uh, what it was like pre-COVID. It seems like it's been so long and it's only, it's only been 
you know, a month and a half, six weeks, roughly since Ohio, um, you know, issued um, the, uh, you know, closure of schools and stayed home and, and so on. I mean, I, I think my expectations early on were that this was going to be a, a, you know, a, a pretty uh, significant event in, uh, in the history of uh, American healthcare. Just um, seeing everything that uh, that Europe had been through and, and, and reading about, you know, China's experience, I knew this had the uh, potential to get uh, very serious very quickly. Uh, and uh, in and around uh, our institution um, at, you know, Cleveland Clinic main campus, and I'm sure you can attest to um, at Akron General, um, you know, we uh, started developing plans very, uh, very quickly. Um, you know, I, I think what's been really impressive is uh, the speed at which we've been able to put things in action. Um, our administration has been very proactive and um I think uh, I said the foresight uh, to um, uh, uh, I think anticipate where the where, where the governor was heading in terms of um, reducing uh, and really eliminating um, uh, you know non-essential or elective procedures. So we were we were uh, on board with that from the very beginning, and we were able to ramp down very quickly. Um, and that that's, that actually was was a challenging thing to do because. Um, especially in cardiovascular medicine, uh, you know, I, so much of what we do and provide uh, are life uh, saving or really quality of life improving measures. And um, delaying these things is, is tough. It's, it's tough for patients and it's, it's hard emotionally on patients as well as on us because we, you know, we were connected to our patients. We want to offer them care. And um, I think at first, um, one of the hardest things for me uh, was uh, having to call patients and tell them that their procedures were delayed. Uh, I had a, a few patients that really did not take the news very well. And um, I think, uh, you know, when, when the governor came out and, and, I, and said, you know, this is something which is, uh, you know, a policy for the state of Ohio, uh, it gave us something to fall back on. Uh, but a lot of, you know, patients were reluctant to kind of go along with that at first. Now, now I think it's a little easier because people understand the gravity of the situation. Um, so, uh, you know, things have really evolved and, you know, as, as we all know, things lag by, uh, back behind by a few weeks. So, um, I, I think now we're, we're finally settled into kind of the new reality of, um, you know, elective procedures being deferred. And, and I think hopefully we'll get to a point that we can ramp up again, uh, pretty soon. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that I think was the biggest thing early on. I, I, I kind of, I knew, I anticipated that it would be, um, like this, it's just when you, when you experience it and, you know, your, your whole routine has changed at work. Um, I think living it is a whole nother thing. I think we've just been fortunate at, at the clinic, um, to be, uh, in a very, uh, supportive, uh, environment, uh, that, uh, has been, has been really, I don't know, very, very, very supportive of all caregivers, not just physicians, but everyone else and kind of have this, we're all in it together mentality. Um, you, you, you know, you hear and you read about, a lot of uh, situations around the nation where, um, you know, other uh, other providers haven't been quite as fortunate. So, uh, you know, I, I think we anticipated, but now that we're in the thick of it, um, obviously we're not encountering the same volume of COVID patients as other places, but it's still somewhat, uh, it's a very different experience. It's kind of sur surreal to be living through this. Yes, you know, I would like to take this opportunity to to give a shout out to the Cleveland Clinic um, in, you know, and how well they uh, have, uh, you know, taken care of us as healthcare workers. Uh, you know, our structural heart um, 
one one of the team members of the structural heart team at Akron. You're uh, you're a member of this team as well. Uh, you know, one of the members had to um, be quarantined for um, testing positive, and you know what what we learned was that that healthcare worker and uh, the family of that specific healthcare worker were supported incredibly well through the Cleveland Clinic system. You know, as in, you know, meals were uh, being provided uh, um, at at their home, and um, you know, every measure was was taken to make sure that they're they're comfortable. Which, you know, I, I think has been has been incredible. I mean, we've we've gotten you know thank you cards. We've also gotten uh, you know just yesterday I saw a placard installed at you know my my neighbor who also happens to be a Cleveland Clinic employee uh, installed outside the house saying that we're, we're heroes. So, you know, it's, it's sort of humbling and, you know, it's, it's the, the, the recognition is, is very heartwarming uh, and you're right. I mean, we're, we've been fortunate to, to be very well supported by uh, our leadership uh, at the Heart Vascular and Thoracic Institute, but also the institution uh, overall. Uh, so let me let me ask you this. So you know, like you said, um, a lot of what we do is is very essential. So I think cardiovascular emergencies and non-essential don't go together. And a lot of what we also do is you know can't be delayed. Um, what how as the director of of the the STEMI program, uh, and you know obviously STEMIs don't fall under the rubric of non-essential anyways, but you know, thinking out loud about uh, triaging non-ST elevation MI cases, um, you know, for selective invasive strategy versus early invasive strategy, what were the discussions that happened for you to be able to put that algorithm together? Yeah, um, well, um, I think there are, as you said, I think the two different categories in which we've been classifying patients, and that's into the cardiovascular emergencies, uh, those being, uh, you know, ST segment elevation MI, um, as well as uh, uh, NSTEMI, which are which are high risk, um, you know, patients that really you know can't wait for catheterization who need an immediate invasive strategy, and then and then you know uh, patients that have acute coronary syndrome, uh, which are maybe not quite as urgent, um, low risk NSTEMI, uh, unstable angina, and stable angina, and just kind of looking at um, you know kind of all these patients with coronary disease uh, into um, you know kind of as 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 a group. Um, Early on, we, as as is the case with everywhere around the nation, um, it, it was evident that we were going to have to um, effectively triage patients in a way that was responsible, um, which uh, allowed them to get necessary healthcare uh, in uh, an expedited fashion if needed, uh, but also minimize the risk to providers. Uh, so uh, when you think about uh, STEMI, uh, and, and one of the roles I, I have at the Cleveland Clinic is I'm fortunate to uh, be in charge of our uh, enterprise STEMI program, um, which actually uh, encompasses Cleveland Clinic main hospitals as well as all the regional hospitals and, and uh, gives recommendations to our affiliate hospitals as well. Um, it was evident that as uh, this COVID pandemic uh, started to um, unfold that we were going to have to make some some pretty significant changes uh, to our status quo, um, to how, how we provide STEMI, uh, not just to COVID positive patients, but to all patients so that we can minimize the risk to providers. So, and I, I can kind of lump high risk and STEMI into this group because these are patients that maybe are coming in, you know, kind of urgently um, that, you know, don't have SC segment elevation, but maybe they have refractory chest pain or they're unstable, don't meet quite, you know, STEMI criteria, but bottom line, these are acute 
emergent catheterizations. And I think number one is we need to um, all uh, understand that, um, and I think we all do, um, have a, a great um, sense of duty to the patients. And you know, know that and at least my attitude and the attitude of our entire section has been that we want to take care of patients, number one, and, and that uh, although uh, the uh, COVID pandemic is affecting all of us, um, it really shouldn't, it shouldn't um, impede the high quality care that we provide every day. And there are certain tenants that I think are very important for us to appreciate. And I think that's that we, we want to provide the same high quality care of patients regardless of if they have COVID infection. Um, we want to preserve the emphasis on primary PCI, which I think is evidence-based and been proven to be the most effective treatment for a STEMI rather than, you know, fibrinolysis or, you know, other, other strategies. And we want to do this in a way that minimizes the risk to providers. So, um, you know, early on myself and other individuals in my section and you know, our chairman, uh, we're all very heavily involved in conversation of how we can change the Cleveland Clinic STEMI policy so that we can minimize the risk to providers and, and also, uh, you know, to patients in this process. And there are a few things that we, um, that we adopted very quickly. And this is, you know, based on our conversations, but also based on the ACC Interventional Council recommendation, SKY recommendations, recommendations of other professional groups and seeing what had been going on. In, uh, in, in Italy and, and Spain. And what, what we did is we, and I think this is probably similar to a lot of other institutions, but we, um, we created a policy that um, the patients that were either COVID positive or, or very um, um, suspicious for COVID, um, that, that providers should, should wear N95 mask and other standard precautions, including eye protection and, and uh, uh, you know, drop of precautions. Um, so that was that was at first in patients who were COVID positive or, or high risk, and we've we've since liberalized that to anyone who's um, uncertain of their COVID exposure that that may have an exposure in the community. Because obviously, um, you know, the way that we were screening for COVID and testing for COVID at first was a lot more restrictive. Now it's gotten a little bit broader. Um, and this is actually how we treat um, uh, in a. Uh, the essential procedures which we're doing is that we'll, um, you know, it's highly recommended and in, in, um, in, in every case to my knowledge at this point, we are testing patients for COVID prior to them coming in for their surgery, for TAVR, um, and uh, even for their, their PCI. Um, so we treat the same for STEMI, although we, do, we don't recommend patients get tested in the emergency room, we recommend that they're screened. So we've eliminated all the ED bypass STEMI we actually don't recommend patients come right from the emergency room. I'm sorry, right, right from EMS to the cath lab, which is an avenue which we used to bring patients in. EMS can activate based on the EKG. We don't, we don't allow that anymore. We, we send patients, all patients to the ED first, and then that way they can get quickly screened for COVID in terms of their symptoms. Um, you know, fevers, chills, other, um, you know, symptoms, uh, anyone with contacts. And if it's evident that they're having a STEMI um, and they don't have these high-risk features um, for COVID, then we, we treat it as if it's, um, you know, just a, a typical STEMI case and everyone wears the standard precautions. However, if there's any concern for COVID, then we take the extra precaution of having everybody, not just the providers, um, you know, doing the case, not just the, the, in our case, the interventionalists and the fellows 
but also all the nurses involved in the techs wear the appropriate precautions. And you know that that in our experience has not slowed down um, the ability to provide timely STEMI care. If, if anything, uh, it gives everyone that much more assurance and confidence that we're doing the right thing and taking the right precautions. Now it, it does, you know, rely on the administration supporting this and having enough PBE in the cath lab. Um, but we, we also, we're finding that we're not having to do this for many people in our, our semi uh, case volume is, is a reasonable volume for a large hospital system. Um, but we're able to handle this. And I think it, it's allowed, uh, you know, uh, uh, providers, uh, caregivers to be that much more confident that they're protected during the case. And I, I personally had a case, um, a couple of weeks ago where uh, it was a, a 30 year old gentleman came in with anterior ST segment elevations on their EKG. And I had a suspicion it wasn't a true STEMI, but in the context of their EKG, we had to do the case. There was no way that we shouldn't do the case. Um, very high risk for, uh, for his, uh, COVID exposure he ended up having a viral myocarditis and being very sick. Um, and the whole time we all were N95 masks, he was in the cath lab twice that day for different reasons. Um, and none of them were coronary related. So um, everyone was careful. And, um, you know, we, uh, uh, I think, uh, all felt good about the care we, 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 we provided. But, um, you know, that, so that's number one, is we want to make sure that providers are um, feeling safe. And, uh, you know, I think taking a couple extra precautions early on, you can do that in a, in a timely fashion. Yes, no, thanks a lot for going over the, the protocol and, you know, the thought process. Uh, you know, I agree with you. I think um, a primary percutaneous coronary intervention is evidence-based, is um, safe and is effective, you know, compared with fibrinolysis. And just to expose our patients to the um, attendant risks of fibrinolysis, you know, particularly with regard to bleeding, and uh, rescue uh, percutaneous coronary intervention, you know, were risks that as a group, uh, you know, like you eloquently discussed, you know, we didn't feel it was worth the, the risk that our patients should be exposed to. And, you know, we've, we've um, maintained the primary PCI program. How has, how has this affected the structural heart interventions? Um, well, the, you know, the, the COVID pandemic is, um, it definitely forced us to reprioritize a lot of what we do in general. And, um, you know, when it comes to TAVR, um, you know, we, you know, I, I think we're in a unique position where we're a, a referral uh, center uh, of last resort. And a lot of times, you know, we, we have a very high volume of, uh, of TAVR and other structural heart disease referrals on a monthly basis. And a lot of these patients are um, relatively medically complicated uh, or complex, I should say. Um, you know, they have multiple issues. They've either been assessed by a, a local facility and then referred here. Uh, and many of them are just in our community as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we actually, you know, and many of the patients that we encounter, at least with severe aortic stenosis, they're, they're pretty significantly symptomatic. So within our structural heart disease program, we have a team of incredible uh, nurse practitioner coordinators, uh, nurse specialist coordinators as well, that um, help us to uh, triage patients. And um, patients that maybe had were, were asymptomatic with severe aortic stenosis, um, um, patients that, uh, you know, or, or just, I should say mildly asymptomatic, because we don't typically, you know, even uh, encounter patients that are truly asymptomatic in, in, 
outside of the context of a, of a clinical trial like um, like early TABR. The bottom line is that if, if patients had very mild symptoms, um, you know, uh, who uh, were, were doing okay, um, uh, uh, then those patients um, are, are more able to be deferred uh, uh, until after uh, these uh, restrictions from the from the governor are, are, are lifted. Um, in reality, <laughs> many patients don't want to wait, um, right? And uh, you know, the more that you talk to patients about their uh, symptoms with aortic stenosis, it seems like the more symptomatic they become. And I don't know if that's a you know a, the the cognitive aspect and the psychological aspect of having severe aortic stenosis, but I find that the more that you talk to patients and explain their issue to them, it almost seems like the more symptomatic they become. And um, in our uh, practice, we actually you know we, we certainly have rearranged, reprioritized certain patients to be done a little bit earlier and certain patients to be done a little later. Um, but uh, we've actually, you know, still kept up with volume uh, fairly reasonably during this time, uh, just because of the nature of how sick the patients are that we treat. You know, another question I get asked is, are we doing more uh, bridging aortic uh, and balloon aortic valvuloplasties? And that's something which not a lot of centers do in high volume, but at the Cleveland Clinic, we actually do a reasonable amount of because we, we find it to be both a useful uh, diagnostic and therapeutic tool in patients that you need to bridge the tabber. And we at least were concerned that, okay, we're not going to have the operating room time or the ability to offer to tabber um, in an expeditious way to the inpatients that are admitted. So we're going to be doing more BAVs. And in, actual, in actuality, we have not had to do that at all. And uh, if anything, you know, because we've had some patients cancel their tabber procedures just out of their own volition because they don't feel that it's safe to come to the hospital for one reason or another, then we'll have a couple you know, spots open. We've been able to adjust in inpatients that have severe aortic stenosis with, with TAVR a little bit more readily. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, on balance, uh, it seems like our, our structural division is, is handling this pretty well. But, you know, it, it's a, a week by week process. You know, we're, we're constantly having to reevaluate things. And, you know, I, I think what we're experiencing now in terms of our volumes is a reflection of, you know, cases that were scheduled a few weeks ago. And, and as you, we all know, the changes that are made from the public health standpoint affect patients being infected, you know, today and tomorrow and in the immediate future, but that their consequences or their infection aren't evident for, you know, 10 days, two weeks sometimes. So it's the same kind of thing we're seeing in our volumes is that, um, you know, I, I think our volumes are down now because of the changes that were made a few weeks ago. And when we expect to ramp things up again, there's some inertia to this that it's going to take a little time to ramp back up again. And also um, for patients to fully buy in to being in a healthcare facility and uh, at least the, the perception that they may be exposed uh, to, um, you know, to infection. Uh, so, and I, I think that is something which uh, we, we go to great lengths to assure patients that yes, you know, you're, you're perfectly safe here in the hospital because we're taking so many precautions. And if anything, you know, this environment is, is probably all the more safer than it is in the community if you were to be, you know, even out at the grocery store per se. But um, I think at least that's what we've experienced is that our volumes are down um, to some degree, but we're still providing good care. And I think that's the important thing. And, and I think it'll probably uh, nationally probably not rebound immediately. I'm not sure what you think of that, Anker, but um, that's, that's my perception. Yes, you know, I think it's going to be important um, how we reinstitute uh, our operations. Um, and, that, you know, that's something I wanted to discuss with you. I think there's 
um, you know, not, for the first stop, I, you know, again, just to reiterate the, the importance that, you know, in cardiovascular medicine, particularly interventional cardiology, uh, there are very few procedures which are not, not, not essential, like you said. And, um, you know, I was just reading the statistic, which was sent out in an email by the American Medical Association that in, uh, in the months of March and April combined, there have been an excess of 15,000 deaths compared with what the, what that number looked like last year about the same time. And these are not, these are non-coronavirus deaths. These are deaths which, you know, are just the 15,000 excess deaths. And, you know, I think at, at some point, uh, I'm sure there's going to be analysis done, but the collateral damage with, with, with regard to um, patients either being too fearful of uh, seeking emergency care or prolonging access to care because of coronavirus and social distancing uh, and, you know, physical distancing, uh, you know, I'm sure there's going to be collateral damage, which, you know, analyses will come out. So I, I do think it's very important to reinstitute care uh, responsibly uh, and keeping, you know, the public health interest in mind, of course. How, how do you foresee that um, getting operationalized? Like, how do you foresee uh, that getting uh, instituted? That's a great question. I'm, I'm completely with you that we need to find a way to do this in a responsible fashion. I think number one is that, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's going to have to be not a trial and error, but that we're, we're going to have to be able to react to the changes that we see quickly with data and be able to, if we open things up again, be able to pull back rapidly if we notice over the course of, you know, this you know, the next few weeks that we're noticing an increased risk of infection and or prevalence of infection in the community. So I think it's going to have to be done with a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of um, attention to detail when it comes to data and monitoring uh, with testing and then uh, the ability to uh, make rapid changes. And that's actually one of the things I've, I've been very impressed with um, at the Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, not, not to necessarily tout all the great things about our organization, but it, I, one of the things that has been very impressive to me is just how rapidly we were able to make change and how responsive the leadership was to the recommendations that we that we have. So I think being able to do the same thing in the community, being able to react to the data that we see and say, hey, you know, we're we're spiking, we need to pull back quickly. I think that's that's the key to being able to open up again. So operationalizing that at the clinic, I think, uh, will hopefully and you know, we'll, we'll be able to react the same way. We're being able to look at data in terms of the number of missions that we have, our resource utilization, our ability to uh, handle um, the needs of our community and then be able to adjust from there. And I think, you know, at least my perception is that the nationally we've gotten a lot better at that uh, over the last several weeks. And that's one of the keys uh, to uh, being able to handle um, you know, a high level infection in the community and uh, is uh, not necessarily to um, socially isolate forever um, in every way, but to relax restrictions in certain ways. And then, um, you know, to uh, be able to shift resources in a way to um, handle the areas that are spiking the most. So, so operationalizing, I think, is going to be driven by data. It's going to be also something which um, uh, I can see, especially if there's, you know, kind of framing it in a way that there may be um, more than one wave of this. Uh, we, we're going to have to react to that in, in a real-time fashion. Um, 
so, um, you know, as we know, is nationally a 38% decrease in calf lab activations from March 1st to, to you know, uh, early, uh, early April, I believe. And, uh, you know, in Italy, 70% reduction in STEMI volume. In the, in the Lombardi region, in Spain, 40% reduction in PCI for STEMI. Um, I'm hoping that as, as patients um, start to re-engage with healthcare, uh, maybe we'll, we'll see um, uh, these, these numbers go up because there's, there's a, um, not that we want more patients to have STEMI, but as we all know, these patients are out there. Um, and as you mentioned, there, there's going to be a lot of indirect consequences of, of, uh, of what, um, of, of, of the COVID infection. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure what the reason for those mortalities are, but you know, I at least suspect that a number of them, um, are, uh, misstemies or patients with stroke are patients who are, um, you know, maybe otherwise, um, you know, they, maybe they would have avoidable mortalities. So, uh, that I think is going to be one of the more interesting analyses that comes out of this is, is not just what the effect of the COVID is on the patients who get it. Um, but also what the effect of this is on society as, as a whole, we all understand at least. And we're much more familiar with the economic effects of this, um, but, but what, what are going to be the effects of public health that are maybe more indirect? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's going to be tough to analyze, but, you know, I think uh, we're starting to get a sense that this is going to affect a lot more than just the people who have the infection. Yes. Well, Grant, um, I know you have um, a, a clinic schedule ahead of you, um, but thank you for making the time to talk to us. Thanks for all that you've done. Uh, to educate us and lead us um, and provide uh, guidelines for appropriate evidence-based care, um, even in the midst of a pandemic. You know, it's been, it's been great to get to know you over the past year and, you know, have an opportunity to work together doing cases, um, you know, write papers together. And I'm going to put a shameless plug for our paper that we, we've written on uh, just the operationalization of the cardiovascular service line during a pandemic, which, which is currently under review. But, you know, um, it's been it's been a great collaboration with you and, you know, to get to know you. And um, I, I just uh, can't wait for the camaraderie and the uh, uh, and the brotherhood to, to keep growing. Yeah, I, I can't, you know, I can't thank you enough for having me, uh, Anker. You know, for those of you who don't know, uh, Anker and, and I, um, we did uh, uh, some structural cases, some TAVR down at Anker in general. Um, and now they, they, they have a, a program going with with him and with Anmar Kanan and Joe Lahora, it's a, it's a great thing going. And, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't be prouder of you guys. I think you guys are doing a great job. And, um, you know, I think one of the best things about, you know, being here is, uh, has been working with you and, and others, uh, you know, to not only provide, you know, high volume, good clinical care, but be able to do these important academic things. And, um, I, I'm really excited for some of the things that we have coming up and, uh, a lot of it, coincides really well with what we're talking about today. So, uh, you know, I think stay tuned and uh, I think only, only good things are going to come. Um, well, thanks again, Grant. Thanks for the shout out and thanks again for our time. It's been incredible to have you and we'll probably have you back on the show again. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye-bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates.
Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffcardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.